The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Hey, hey, welcome, Disability Law Show. So good to be back here with you. Uh, John Scholes and, of course, my good pal Tamar Gopian partner, Sanfiru Tamarkin, LLP, the most positively reviewed disability law firm in the land. Have you reached out? No? Are you having issues causing you stress? Well, simply do that then. Talk to Tamar anytime. She's got a great crew behind her. And how do you do that, Scholes? Easy. one 855 821-5900. That's the number, help at disabilityrights.ca. And any other questions, you want to type them in, don't want to pick up a phone, that is an option. It is free. It's anonymys and it's called mydisabilityquestions.com. So just some contact there for you off the hop. So much to get through today. A ton of uh, emails and questions piling up uh, tomorrow. So we're going to, we're going to get at her, as they say, but we always start on your end with something that's been happening uh, in your neck of the woods, pal. What's, uh, what's going on today? Absolutely, John. This week, I had a really interesting call that I wanted to share with our listeners because it really touches on our two main areas of expertise at our firm, and that's both disability law and employment law. And look, this is the disability law show, but you can often see that these issues can meld and merge together, John. And so Mm -hmm. this individual's uh, call with us really resonated. Let's call him Zane. I want to keep his uh, personal information private. Got it. He's an, a gentleman who is in his late fifties. He was working as a manager for an organization, uh, not for very long, I would say just over a year. And in that time was under a tremendous amount of stress and the work just kept piling up and there were staffing issues. He kept reporting these issues to his employer and things were not being remediated, and it just became too much for him. And he actually had, unfortunately, a mental health breakdown. He had a complete burnout. He was eventually diagnosed with anxiety and depression and has been treated for that for over a year. He applied for uh, initially short-term disability benefits and then long-term disability benefits. He's been receiving now long-term disability benefits for about 14 months. And of course, for those who listen to the show regularly, the test to qualify in that initial phase of the policy is, look, are you totally disabled by virtue mm-hmm. of your health from returning back to the job that you were doing at the time that you got sick? And in Zane's case, you know, the, the insurance company approved that, yes, in fact, his anxiety and depression were sufficient to you know, uh, get him across that, that threshold of test and be payable and so on. And so as insurance companies do, though, they start getting a little squirrely a couple of months ago, and they start complaining to him that he's not making enough progress with his own treatment, uh, even though he was under the care of a family doctor and a psychiatrist taking medication, uh, but he was just still going through different types of medications and treatment options to see if he can get the anxiety and the depression under control but certainly not in a position at all whatsoever to be returning back to work. But the insurance company was not satisfied by that. They increased the number of phone calls they had with Zane, probing him about his various um, day-to-day activities and health conditions. At some point, they engaged him in an interesting conversation. And this is where I'm getting at, John. The insurance company probed him quite a bit about what was happening in his workplace before he became sick. 
And so, of course, you know, in, in an open, honest way, he responded to their questions and eventually got to a point where he said, look, I just can't see myself going back to that organization, going back to that employer uh, because it triggered such a severe mental health condition. Well, that seemed to be the clincher for the insurance company. They ended up using that fact and that fact alone to say that, look, this is a work avoidance situation and it's not a basis for a total disability claim. We're going to pay you in lieu of a return to work for the next six weeks, and then we're cutting off your claim. Would you believe? Wow. And so wow. we, yeah, we obviously had a very long discussion with him. Uh, we're going to take some steps. We're most likely going to pursue a legal claim. But, you know, what resonated in this situation is the fact that, look, just because you have a mental health condition triggered by your workplace does not mean that you do not have a valid disability claim. And in this gentleman's situation, the insurance company agreed. They actually agreed for 14 months that he had a valid disability claim. So what changed? What changed was an admission that he made, like candidly and not even really with the intention of saying this is work avoidance, just simply being honest with the insurance company to say, look, that employer or that workplace triggered my mental health conditions. My mental health conditions are still not under control. And so the suggestion that I am able to go back to that job within the own occupation period is just not tenable. And by the way, in his situation was also supported by his doctors and the insurance company chose to ignore that cardinal sin, John, they can't do that or shouldn't do that. Of course they do which is why we're here, why we do the show every week. But I think that it is important that not every circumstance is the same as Zane's. But if this situation is resonating with you, please don't hesitate to contact us. We have a variety of lawyers, including myself, who do both sides of the practice of our firm, both the employment and the disability side. And we can often help work through which way do you go with this? Is this an employment claim? Is this a disability claim? Is it some combination of the two? Is what the insurance company is saying to me, does that make sense? And in Zane's case, I can tell you, it does not make sense. I think they were getting antsy, John, about mm-hmm. his age, right? Perhaps, you know, yeah. being concerned about that change of definition that would have been on the horizon in the next sort of 10 months or so, and not really knowing where else they can slot him in order to cut him off. Because he also told me he had other physical issues as well, which precluded him from certain types of work. And we know from the insurance company's perspective, their backup option is always to put you back into an office job where you can answer phones. But if his physical health would not allow him to do that, plus he's got the mental health condition, you can see this is likely a situation where he should have continued receiving benefits and likely until the age of retirement. So there you have it. Yeah, it, it's interesting. It, it, I mean, it's it, it just uh, illustrates the fact that even though you may be collecting benefits for a while, you're never really off the insurance company's radar as as far as them, you know, finding a way to to end those benefits. You know, because it, it is. I mean, you don't hold in the gates, and it's a profit making machine. We get that. That's what insurance companies do. They deny claims and they and they take in uh, you know money from people that are that are paying into a a plan. But that's fine. But it, it's just it's interesting you say that too because there's the mental component and the physical component, and sometimes those one can spawn the other. You may be 
be off for a mental disability and then you'll be getting physical problems as a result of that or other way around. I mean, sometimes you're off with a physical disability for some time and then it gets into your head and, and so on and so forth. So I think all these things are valid. I just don't think Zane realized when he made that comment that it would have such detrimental effects through the insurance company, right? Absolutely. And it, it really shouldn't matter either, though, yeah. John. Mm-hmm. If you're workplace triggered a mental health condition and those mental health conditions are persisting if they are generalized conditions where they exist whether you're in the workplace or not like in Zane's situation then it is a valid disability claim and it's valid if it starts out as a mental health condition and then turns into a physical condition or some combination of the two the disability policy does not make a distinction around whether or not it's mental health or physical or what have you. All it says is, are you unfit as a result of your health conditions, generally an illness or a sickness from doing the essential duties of your own occupation? That's it. That's it. That's all. And so, you know, it's frustrating that we continue to see insurance companies trying to skirt around that definition and finding convenient ways in doing so. And one of them is this breeding ground with what's happening in your workplace they will the insurance company will inquire john at the start of your claim you know what was happening at work Mm -hmm. they will actually reach out to your employer about that and ask look were there performance issues what was going on with this individual i frankly don't think it's all that relevant but they do it they do it because they want to make sure they're you know getting involved in the in a true disability claim not those that are you know potential workplace conflict issues I can understand that, but when you've got doctors supporting that this individual cannot be working right now, in my mind, they should be approved and paid. And like I said, in Zane's situation, he was approved and paid. So the insurance company was aware of the issues that were happening in his workplace. And that still did not deter them because there was medical support that he had a health condition that prevented him from working full stop. They can't just decide because it's taking too long for him to recover that, that they're just getting impatient. They need to cut him off. That's not going to be a, a correct justification and certainly not before the eyes of the court. You know, you've often mentioned since you started doing these shows a long time ago, Tamar, that you, you worked for many years in the insurance side. You were great at it. Now you've come over from the dark side. You're you're over here with uh, San Firu Tamarkin now doing stuff. But I guess a few years ago, it might have been really bad as far as insurance companies recognizing mental illness. Do you think that? I know they got a long way to go, but have they gotten better with that sort of thing? Good question, John. And, you know, I like the reminder of where I've come from and where I've, where I've arrived. And look, I, I think by all means, I'm, I'm thrilled to be uh, championing the rights of individuals on this side mm-hmm. of the fence and working for the firm most certainly. And I really do feel passionately about mental health conditions, I, I, you know, because I do think it's sort of an underrepresented, re- underrepresented group. And I do think that, yes, insurance companies have come a little ways, but not en- enough of a ways. You've got These case managers, adjusters, you know, these are essentially frontline type individuals who are, you know, dealing with claimants who are sick, who've got lots of different health conditions, and they don't really have any medical training, John. The insurance companies don't train these people at all whatsoever on medical conditions. They give them access to a website, like a WebMD type thing, and that's really their their primary resource. And when things get really, really tricky, they might you know, have a doctor on a Rolodex type thing that they can call to do a quick paper review, but that's it. That's it. And with mental health, I just, I 
think there's a lot more sophistication that needs to be there. And frankly, a lot more deference to that individual's own medical team and the advice that they're giving to their patient about whether or not they should be working. Well said. And with that, we'll take a, a short break here. we got so much more to cover, so I want to get the break out of the way, get right back into it. In the meantime, reaching out to Tamar and uh, her crew, simple, one 821 5900 is how you do that. Help at disabilityrights.ca. ton of emails to get through on the show today. And another form for you to ask questions. You can search as well to see if the question has been asked and answered previously called mydisabilityquestions.com. You can use that free and anonymous anytime you like. Your desktop, your tablet, or your phone. Otherwise, you can do that. We'll continue. More Disability Law Show is on the way. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Disability Law Show continues. Good to have you with us here today. By the way, you can reach out anytime you have questions of your own. If, uh, you know, you're a little bashful, you don't want to maybe uh, call right away to Tamar and her team, send an email. That's fine. Help at disabilityrights.ca. But that phone number is one 821 5900 There's also a cool website you can go to called ltdfaq.ca. There's notations there, but LTD drop-down menus, you click on them, there's answers. Really simple, really quick to use and it'll cost you nothing, of course, ltdfaq.ca. But the emails, let's get into this uh, tomorrow. First one for today comes from Jackie. Says, hello, Tamar. I'm on LTD after having two knee surgeries. I cannot return to my daycare job, but during this time off, I was also diagnosed with severe neck stenosis and I'm in pain on the entire right side along with numbness. Can this condition, along with the existing knee issue, be covered by my insurance? Should I mention it to them? Am I covered only under the original injury? Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jackie, for reaching out. And this is something that we get a lot of calls about. You know, if my disability started out as one thing, but while I've been on claim, I've developed other health issues, you know, does it continue? Do I continue to qualify for long-term disability benefits? Jackie, absolutely yes, you do continue to qualify. Because as I said in the first segment, the test to qualify to, to receive ongoing disability benefits is if your health by virtue of an injury or sickness or an illness prevents you from working, full stop. It doesn't really matter what constitutes that health condition. And it doesn't really matter actually if it started out as one thing, but then developed into something else, particularly when it's physical health issues, you can see that they can be actually quite interrelated. We see this a lot, John, and this is not because we're doctors. It's because we have a lot of experience with clients who provide us their medical information, which we review, of course, copiously. And we do a lot of analysis around that. And in Jackie's situation, she describes having knee issues, surgeries as a result mm -hmm. of those knee issues, and then developing severe neck uh, stenosis, which is you know, partly degenerative in the spine and how that is resulting in some pain and numbness. She also tells us that she was doing a daycare job, very physical job, right? So you're with children, you're lifting children, you're playing, you're on the floor, you're on, you know, sitting up, doing a whole host of different things. So I would imagine with all of her physical health issues that those also prevent her from going back to her own occupation and perhaps even any occupation, depending on where she's at in her disability claim. So by all means, if this is your situation, and certainly I'm hoping Jackie's listening, 
Yes, you must communicate all of this to the insurance company. All of it is relevant and you want to be comprehensive so that the insurance company has the full picture. Because I, what I don't want them doing in Jackie's situation is simply saying, look, you have had, you started out with your claim with your knee surgeries. That's fine. We approved and paid you, but now you've recovered from those surgeries. You're good to go. Your knees are fine. You've got brand new knees. Go ahead, go right back to work or do some other job. When they don't have a complete picture, there's, it's too easy, John, for insurance companies to simply cut off the disability benefit on that basis. It is much more effective, much better for individuals who are on claim to continue to supply that information, that medical information to the insurance company so that their benefits continue. That's what it's supposed to be there for, is for disability benefits to be there for the time that you need to deal with your health issues, recover, and then consider whether or not you can go back to your own occupation or some other occupation, depending on where you're at with your health and where you're at in, in that phase of the disability policy. So I don't want there to be any hesitation for individuals to not communicate this information to the insurance company. I think that there's a lot of value in some of that openness with the insurance company, because if they have all this information, Sean, and then they go and cut off the claim anyway, you know what I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. They've probably done an improper analysis. They've probably relied on some paper review. Uh, who knows? I mean, each individual situation has to be analyzed on its own facts, but it's much, much harder if, if the individual, someone like Jackie, hasn't disclosed all of it and the insurance company makes the decision to cut off, then that makes it tougher because we're going to scratch our heads and say, look, the insurance company didn't have all the information. So based on what they had, they then made that decision rightly or wrongly. And all this information corresponds that Jackie wants to uh, give to the insurance company, all with her doctor's backing and blessing, right? Of course, of course. So, you know, at the end of the day, you want to facilitate that information. Uh, It's interesting, though, not all insurance companies will act the same way when it comes to these medical reports. Uh, Sometimes they'll say it's up to you to get it. Sometimes they will write to your own doctor and get it. Either way, you just want to make sure that they have the information, John. So, you know, if you as claimant, that's that you should stay on top of that. You should make sure if requests are being made to your doctor, for example, directly, that you're then following up with your own doctor to say, look, have you sent this over? Have you sent this over? Because doctors tend to not always be as responsive to the insurance inquiries, insurance companies' inquiries. And sometimes that can compromise actually your ongoing entitlement to disability benefits. You don't want that to be you. You want to make sure you're staying on top of what information is, is needed and what, where is that information supposed to come from? Are you supposed to get it from your doctor? Is your doctor supposed to send it directly to the insurance company? Feel very comfortable to reach out to Tamar anytime uh, you can, one 821 5900 You know, it's interesting, uh, based on Jackie's email there, to, uh, two knee surgeries, and now she's got stenosis in her neck. There is absolutely no question that she will be seeing and getting some sort of physical therapy. You know, along those lines, when someone is getting treatment uh, from the insurance company's therapist, how is that, uh, how is the progress tracked, and does it involve the person's own doctor, as far as that's concerned? Yeah, good question, John. I think, you know, we can't assume that it is. Okay, so let right, me right. explain a little bit about how this would work. You know, someone like Jackie, let's use her as an, our example here. Yes, the insurance company at some point may determine that they want her assessed by one of their own treatment providers. And that assessment is so that they can provide further treatment options, potentially, 
And so they will do some kind of a rehab program for individuals, particularly when you've got physical health issues. But that rehab program really is intended to focus your health and treatment to the point where you're ready to get back to work. Because it costs the insurance company money to do this, obviously. And the only time they're going to spend money on your claim is if it means they can get you off claim. So if this sounds familiar, you should recognize and appreciate that this is probably the beginning and the end. They want to get you down this path so that they can sort of check off their boxes and suggest to you, okay, you're good now. You should be able to get back to whatever job, your job, own occupation or any occupation, depending on where you're at in your policy. But here's the interesting thing. They will not update your own medical team about what's happening with the progress of this rehab. They won't do it. They will send the rehab facility that you're attending or the treatment provider that you're seeing that the insurance company has set up for you will be reporting to the insurance company. They will not be reporting to you and they will not be reporting to your own doctors unless you specifically ask. And even then, sometimes it can be like pulling teeth to try and get these reports available, made available to you about how you're doing. And I, I can't tell you enough times, John, where I've spoken to people and they say to me, oh yeah, well, the rehab people said to me, I'm not ready to work. But then I get this letter from the insurance company saying I'm getting cut off and, and I should be ready to get back to work in a month. I say, yeah, well, because they're not being forthright necessarily with you. They, they may be reporting to the insurance companies a different level of progress than what they're sort of representing to you. I'm not saying it's done intentionally. I'm just simply saying that sometimes there can be a disconnect in the communication. And so if you're going through a rehab program with the disability insurer, you want to make sure that someone on your side, yourself or your own medical team is getting copies of the progress or some kind of update from the progress. It could be that it's on you to provide that progress to your doctor. It could be that you say, well, look, I went through an hour and a half of rehab with this treatment facility, and then I was laid up in bed for two days afterwards. The insurance company's not going to know that. The rehab people aren't going to know that unless you report it to them, but your own doctor certainly should, because if the rehab itself is causing harm, if the rehab is not progressing in the way that the insurance company thinks it is, then certainly you want your own team engaged so that when it comes time to the point when the insurance company is inevitably going to say you're ready to get back to work, your doctors are fully up to speed and can actually provide some contacts. Well, hang on there, insurance company. <laughs> you know, my patient was saying to me when she was having a whole heck of trouble with the last six weeks of this treatment. And here's my reiteration of my opinion that she's simply not ready to get back to work. Thanks very much. So it can be a challenge, John, to have these open dialogue between the treatment provider from the insurance company, your own doctors, yourself, and the insurance company. But at the end of the day, the idea here is that I want people to continue getting their disability benefit uninterrupted. Mm. If I can help in any way in that situation, I'd like to. And so my overwhelming advice is, look, don't trust the process necessarily. Make sure you're actively involved in what's happening and that those reports and communications and things are happening with your own medical team involved. Help at disabilityrights.ca. That is the email address we use anytime. In that regard, I want to move on to Heath. This email is just a beauty. He says, I've been on LTD for 14 months under the care of a family doctor and specialist. I was recently told by my insurance company that they do not need my doctor to sign off on me being able to return to work. Is this true? 
I'm sardonically laughing. No, it is not true. It is not true, John. And, and in fact, you know, the times that we've seen the few cases that our team has seen that has seen light of day inside of a courtroom, judges and courts will always prefer your own treatment providers and their opinions over the ones generated by the insurance company or anything that the insurance company might say with a few very limited exceptions, which I don't think are even worth talking about, frankly. At the end of the day, you need to follow your own doctor's advice. Insurance company is going to do what they're going to do. They're going to try and assess your claim. They're going to find opportunities to cut off the claim. As you said before, John, you know, this is how they make their profits, right? They collect the premium and see where they can cut off claims. That's how they keep their shareholders enriched. That's fine. That's their profit model. But what's not fine is if your own doctors are saying you cannot work, insurance company cannot simply ignore that information. They can't ignore it. They have to deal with it. And, you know, I think what's more concerning is the fact that they are suggesting to Heath that that's something that's not even needed. He wouldn't even think to actually go back to his own doctors and say, wait a minute, this doesn't sound right. Can you guys actually rally, maybe prepare a report in a couple of paragraphs, you know, just explaining to the insurance company where I'm at with my health and just reiterating the opinion, look, I can't, I can't work right now. That's the part of this that, that concerns me the most is that individuals do not understand that that is their right. This is a pressure tactic oftentimes with insurance company insurance companies and people don't know that the way to protect themselves is to actually engage their own medical team. Look, like I said, the insurance company is going to do what they're going to do. They're going to go down that path of trying to decline regardless. It's just in my mind, it's shameful to do that. You know, if you've misled the claimant that they can't actually support their claim with their own medical information, that has to be considered, that has to be taken into consideration in the analysis that the insurance company does. And John, by the way, there is a section in most claims files that says analysis. And so when I get retained on behalf of a client, I'm requesting that claims file and I'm going through that claims file in detail to see exactly what that analysis said, right? So did they actually make the inquiry from the doctor or actually request the claimant to get medical updates before they cut off the claim? Did they, what did they analyze? What parts of those reports and medical information did they look at? Did they consider, for example, the information provided by the claimant, him or herself? They do telephone calls. We talk about this on the show all the time. If someone is communicating to the insurance company, I've got new health issues on the horizon. Was that taken into consideration in the analysis of the insurance company's claim to cut off the claim? And if not, those are all problems that I will underline to the insurance company Mm -hmm. within the context of a legal claim to try and successfully get a result for my clients. With that, we will take a short break. Some more advice from Tamar is coming up, so stick around for it. Reach out in the meantime, 1-855-821-5900, help at disabilityrights.ca. It's a disability law show. It continues. Hang on. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio 640 Toronto. 
Thanks so much for hanging in there. Disability Law Show continues tomorrow. Gopian Partners, Samfiru Tamarkin, LLP, the most positively reviewed disability law firm in the land, coast to coast to coast, helping thousands of people get the compensation they are owed. It just uh, requires a phone call, short conversation, really stress-free, right? 1-855-821-5900, help at disabilityrights.ca is the email address we use every show and the website, mydisabilityquestions.com. It's free. It's anonymous. It's another place yet for you to ask uh, some questions anytime and get them answered. Tamar, any advice to what type of information the insurance company needs to approve someone's disability claim? I could talk for hours, John. Ah, Of course you can. (laughs) I'm teasing. I'm teasing. It actually really comes down to, I think, the theme of the show, which is medical support, right? I mean, that's really the theme of the show is that you really want to have that medical support that you're, in fact, disabled from working as a result of your health issues. But let's get a little bit more into the weeds. To start off a disability claim, you always need three forms. The first form is one that you will complete, your employee statement, member statement, something like that, in which you will provide, obviously, your you know, name, address, all that information, what job you were doing, and a brief explanation about what health issues have put you off work, who's, who are your doctors, those are all included in a standard form. The second form is one that's to be completed by your doctor. And I would say typically, it'll be a family doctor, or it could be a specialist, or both. There's no harm in getting more than one form completed but there certainly needs to be at least one. And that is usually called the attending physician statement or medical certificate, something to that effect. Those two are the forms that individuals need to submit to start the process on their end. The third form actually comes from your employer. So you do need to make your employer aware, and they probably are by the time you're making your long-term disability claim anyway. You wanna make them aware, look, I'm gonna make an application for long-term disability benefits, because that then will initiate them submitting their form. And in their form, John, they will also confirm how long have you worked at that company? What was your last job title? What were the general duties of your occupation? What your salary level was? And confirming that you have coverage under under the disability plan. Those are the three forms that are required. What I find, what I tend to see, John, is that people just submit the forms and then hope that that's going to be enough to get their disability claim approved. And, you know, sometimes it is, but there are often cases that I see where it is not. And so do not be discouraged from putting in further information. In other words, your doctor can actually include tests, reports, clinical notes, x-rays. There's a whole host of things that your doctor can attach to the attending physician statement that will be very helpful for the insurance company to adjudicate and review your claim. More information, the better. And really what it comes down to is what type of disability, what's the nature of your disability? Is your disability, as we talked about in the show, stemming from a mental health condition? Is your disability stemming from a physical condition or some combination of the two? If that's the case, always err on the side of being more comprehensive as opposed to less comprehensive. The more information that you make available to the insurance company, the better it will be for them to evaluate, look, what are the primary issues putting you off work and what other potential health issues are sort of lingering as well that could be creating this this complete package. 
because I do have a lot of clients, John, who, and, and I describe this a lot, have a constellation of health issues, have a yes. variety of things going on with their health, right? And they, the doctor tends to put sort of the main thing or one thing, but oftentimes doesn't include all the other details. And yet when I speak to these individuals, they tell me, well, I've got tomorrow, I've got this issue and that issue, you know, and it's like four or five things. Well, you want to make sure those four or five things are communicated to the insurance company as a whole picture. So that's really the core of my advice around what type of information. I think it's driven by the nature of your disability, sometimes by the nature of your occupation. You want to make sure those connections can be made fairly easily. And, and John, you know, we, we talk about this. It's not always, well, I broke my arm and, you know, I'm, I'm a, I don't know, pianist. And therefore, you know, it's an automatic, you know, I'm totally disabled and I can't play piano, so I can't do my occupation. Oftentimes it's far more nuanced than that. And so if it's nuanced, you want to make sure that information is available to the insurance company. So they've got that whole, whole picture. Yeah. So lim- you set out your limitations, make sure your doctor communicates your treatment and uh, puts in some information around your diagnosis and your prognosis. And I think the employment information typically will follow from the employer. Let's get to uh, to Gordon. Gordon's up next. Email again, help at disabilityrights.ca says uh, my insurance company denied my LTD. They are asking for clinical notes and records from all my doctors. Do I have to provide these records? I know that only a judge can ask for the clinical notes for privacy issues. What are my rights here? Yeah, good question, Gordon. So as I described, when you complete these disability forms, these initial application forms to the insurance company, they will invariably include a fairly detailed authorization and consent at the back end that you sign and submit to the insurance company. John, a lot of the times people aren't reading the small print. And I get that. That's not your job. You don't have to necessarily, but you should understand and be aware that the small print also gives your insurance company the consent to have them get information on your behalf. This consent and authorization at the end of these standard forms allows the insurance company to actually write to your doctor directly and say, I would like information from you about how you know Gordon's treatment is, what how, what's Gordon's situation and condition. They, that you are then consenting by signing to allow them to do that. And that's what gets around this idea that my health information is private. So I suspect that Gordon's already signed that kind of an authorization and consent. And so if the insurance company requires that information, they likely can or should have written out for it. I think what concerns me is that he says, well, I've been denied and they've been asking for records from my doctors. And so if that's the basis of the denial, if the insurance company is saying, look, we don't think we have sufficient information here to adjudicate your claim. And we've asked for these records and you haven't provided it. That puts the insurance company in a tough spot, but it puts Gordon in a worse situation. I would say you're better off providing this information to the insurance company than withholding it because you're concerned about privacy issues, because they're going to do what they do, which is to cut off the claim. Without that information, they cannot continue supporting your disability benefits. And then even then. So Maybe we pick this up after our break. Uh, John, I want to tie off a couple of other points on Gordon's email. We'll do that. Gordon, stand by. Hope the answer so far is, uh, is satisfactory. We'll, uh, we'll embellish a little bit after the break. In the meantime, one 821 5900 to reach out to Tamar and her team at the firm. No problem. Help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll get to more of it. Disability Law Show is coming up.
You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio 640 Toronto. We are back. Disability Law Show. I appreciate your patronage here each week. And if you want to uh, contact Tamar and her team anytime, send along an email. First route right there, help at disabilityrights.ca. The phone number, toll free, one 821 5900 And a free and anonymous place for you to ask questions. You can search as well to see if it has been asked already. If it has, read the answer. If it's satisfactory, you can close the browser, walk away. Nobody, uh, none the wiser. But if you want to leave it there, you can. It is mydisabilityquestions.com. Uh, just as we got into break, talking about Gordon uh, Tamar, uh, denied LTD, looking at those records, uh, thinks a judge needs to get into uh, for privacy issues for the clinical notes. But uh, where, you, where, where do you want to take this one in the end? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, John. So what I wanted to tie off is this idea that only a judge can order for your records to be produced. Mm-hmm. That That's not actually the case. If you provide that consent to your treatment provider, whether it be a psychiatrist, psychologist, a family doctor, and you consent to have that information shared with the insurance company, then that information can be shared and I think should be shared. I really do think that there is an obligation on someone who is on claim on disability to try and do what they can to provide that information over to the insurance company. If the insurance company takes this information, doesn't do the right analysis or ignores some information and declines your claim anyway, that is an excellent position to be in to challenge the insurance company. It's much, much tougher to have the opposite situation, which I think maybe what's happening with Gordon which is that they didn't have enough information to continue paying the disability claim. And I think he's had some concerns around a breach of privacy or not being able to disclose this information to the insurance company. I would really discourage that kind of an idea because even if we start a legal claim on behalf of our clients, John, you know, we're not waiting for a judge to order that the medical records be produced in the context of a legal claim. Now I'm talking about, you know, when we're involved and of course we facilitate this on behalf of our clients, we will uh, speak to their doctors, get the records that we need, get the information that we need, but we do get that information because really at the end of the day, you want to demonstrate ongoing total disability. And whether you do that while you're on claim or you do that with our help in the context of a legal claim, you don't want to wait for a court order necessarily if the records are relevant and producible. It's a whole different kettle of fish if the insurance company is asking for things that are not relevant to your disability claim. But if they're they're medical records that speak to the fact that you're unwell and can't work, then I see absolutely no downside to getting that information over to the insurance company. And in fact, encouraging those who are in your treatment world who are helping you with your health to say, look, I need you guys to send this information over to the insurance company so that I can keep getting my disability benefit. You know, we often talk about that two-year mark where things can change, the change of definition, a cutoff on the horizon for the insurance company. But when dis- uh, disability benefits are approved past that two-year mark, is it more likely that the insurance company will keep paying benefits right up until the end of the policy, which generally is about age 65? I wish that were the case, John. I really do. Um, you know, <laughs> I wish I could say to people, yep, you know what? If you get past that massive hurdle of the change of definition, you're good to go. You're going to get your payments till age 65. But 
insurance companies just don't work that way. They just don't. And so look, let's, let's pull it back for a second. Just explain this on this show, you know, the change of definition, what that means. So when you're initially approved, you're approved on the basis that you're totally disabled from doing the job that you were doing at the time that you stopped working. Typically within 24 months of payments or two years of payments, at that point, the policy will have a different test to qualify. It then says, is there any occupation you can do, anything in the world for which you've got you know, the minimum education, training, and experience, and that would essentially pay you what you're getting as your LTD benefit. So arguably the threshold to continue getting disability benefits past that two-year mark is much tougher. And insurance companies invariably will try and cut off claims before they click over past that two-year mark because they know what I know, which is that it's much tougher to justify cutting them off once you've accepted that someone can't work in another occupation. You'll be having to do a lot of effort to do that. But if there's financial benefit for the insurance company to do it, they will do it, unfortunately. You know, I saw something yesterday, John, I, I, I couldn't believe it. It was a letter that said, we've temporarily accepted that you're totally disabled from any occupation. It's just temporary. We're only agreeing that you're, you're not able to work for the next six months. There's a whole bunch of facts that go with that one. But I sort of chuckled because really, I don't quite understand that analysis that you could temporarily be totally disabled from any occupation if you've been on this path for several years and that your doctors are supporting that you cannot work. So I think it's an unusual situation, but one that's very indicative of what insurance companies will do, which is to continue to adjudicate, continue to review your situation. They are obligated to do that to some extent, but it all depends on what that review looks like. Typically, it will be much more aggressive if they're trying to pop you off claim, including rehab efforts, perhaps an an independent medical examination. There's a whole host of tools that these insurance companies will use. Those tools typically don't go away unless you've been on claim for a long, long time. And then even then, because it all depends, look, are you two years away from age 65? Are you 10 years away from age 65? If an insurance company can find an opportunity to end that claim sooner than later, they will try and do that. I want to get to one more quick email. I think we got time to get through this quickly. And that is Bruce says, I receive LTD and I'm on permanent disability. I recently got arrested and charged with a criminal offense. Can the insurance company terminate my LTD because I now have a criminal record? Good one. Good one. So we were talking about these exclusions, I think, on one of our shows. And one of the exclusions that exist in these disability policies is, you know, if you are uh, charged with a crime or you are incarcerated, you are not entitled to disability benefits. But each policy is slightly different on that clause. So I would encourage anyone, if you're in that situation, you want to actually see what that exclusion says. Because some policies will say your benefits will be paused for the time that you're actually incarcerated. Other policies will say you're not entitled at all if your disability arose from the criminal act or criminal offense. For example, if you got hurt, while you're in the midst of committing a crime, for example, that's what the exclusion is meant for. So I would encourage anyone, if you're not sure, take a look, give us a call, we'll look at it as well. But it's not uncommon to see there being a link between whether or not you continue to get disability benefits and what the policy says about a criminal offense and a criminal arrest and charge, particularly if you're incarcerated. 
And that will do it for another day. You are in wonderfully safe hands if you reach out to Tamar and her team. Just get that conversation going. Information is key right here. How easy it is. 1-855-821-5900. Again, 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca. That's the email address. And finally, the website, mydisabilityquestions.com. Thanks for hanging around. We'll do it again next week right here on the Disability Law Show. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Global News Radio 640 Toronto.